0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: From eliminating rats and mold in housing to managing the agency's human capital, the Housing and Urban Development Inspector General has issued a list of priority open recommendations in its first ever report of its kind from the HUD Office of Inspector General. Joining me with the highlights, Inspector General Ray Oliver Davis. Ms. Davis, good to have you back.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
1: So this report is the first of its kind. Tell us more about it, its genesis, and what you're trying to accomplish with it.
0: As you said, it's the first priority, top priority RECS report we've ever done. The idea is really just to focus leadership, focus the discussion between myself, the secretary, the deputy secretary on the most important topics, the things that we really think are standing in the way of the ultimate success of HUD in carrying out its mission. We've done a lot of work in this area. When I first stepped into this role back in January of 2019, we had over 2,000 open RECS with the department. We have now, I believe, 800. So we've made a real concerted effort in order to make a positive impact on the department. But these things, the 2000 recommendations, they're all important, but they all can't be at the very top. So this just brings everything to the top of mind, the things that we meet about and discuss every day, the most important recommendations. So that's what it's really about.
1: Is this a compilation of material from other reports into a kind of meta report, you might say?
0: It absolutely is. You know, every year we do the top management challenges. So that's really guided us. But we have, we look back year over year. We've also looked at GAO's recommendations to see the commonalities we have there. You know, GAO has always done a very good job of when there's a new administration handing them a letter. Here's what we have, um, new secretary. Here's what we want you to focus on. So this is really our answer to that.
1: And let's talk about one that's at the top of the list, eliminating hazards in HUD-assisted housing. If you look at the HUD mission, it's to ensure housing for people that might not otherwise be able to afford it. And so as the government pursues customer experience, you might say that's the customer experience challenge for HUD, you know, the ultimate customer, if not the housing authorities it deals with, but the residents of that housing. And tell us what's going on there. What's the major challenge in housing itself?
0: Well, absolutely. You said it. We're talking about HUD's beneficiaries. It's uh, usually our most vulnerable populations, those of the lowest income, some that are disabled, some that are elderly. And this is where they turn for housing. And, you know, I think this idea of hazards in public housing is even more dire when you look at the affordability crisis. People are having trouble finding homes, much less safe, sanitary homes. So, in particular, when it comes to our recommendations, we're talking about lead paint. We still see lead paint in public housing. Now that's really public- surprising that there mm-hmm. is
1: still lead paint since it was outlawed almost 60 years ago. That means places haven't been painted in 60 years.
0: It doesn't mean they haven't been painted it but it means that the housing stock is actually quite old uh, much of our public housing stock predates 1978 when lead paint was outlawed so i'm not surprised tom i get that all the time when i go talk to groups about this people are surprised that lead paint is still an issue and in fact if you look at the cdc and the epa i mean they put out stats about this the children are the most vulnerable For elevated blood levels and lead poisoning. And we have roughly about half a million children in the U.S. with elevated blood levels. And that's those that we know of. That means that there's actual testing going on and that we're aware of that. So it's still a very, very real issue.
1: And what is HUD's proper mechanism for getting at issues of substandard housing? They have to work through housing agencies, correct?
0: They do. They are supposed to ensure compliance with lead safe housing rules. They are supposed to raise awareness out in the community as well. So our strategy is to really ensure there is compliance. We're hoping if we can get compliance out in the field, we'll see less lead poisoning long term.
1: And then the flip side related issue is ensuring access to and availability of affordable housing. What's the big issue there?
0: Oh, gosh. That might be, in some ways, the top priority rec for me. Uh, What we're really talking about here is rental assistance. And this is something that HUD provides to beneficiaries. It allows them to take a voucher. It's a housing choice voucher, go out into the private sector and find their own unit, which Sounds good. It gives our beneficiaries autonomy over their own lives. I mean, they can go out and find their own unit, but it's much more difficult than what it sounds. And frankly, some of this is out of HUD's control. We have landlords that don't want to accept the vouchers. We have a very high rental market right now, as we all know. This is in the news every day. So individuals have trouble finding units where their voucher will even pay the rent. Some of them will become rent poor because they'll be accountable for the difference between the voucher. And the actual rent. Now, HUD has done some work here. They've done some work on what we call their fair market rent value. This last year, they really looked at private sector numbers and that methodology to try to account for some of the challenges we're seeing in the housing market right now. The other thing is, is people have to go where the jobs are, and often that's where the higher rent is. But what we're trying to do is get HUD to come up with a strategy to explore reallocating these vouchers when they go unused. We did some work back in 2020, and we found that 62% of PHAs had unused voucher authority. The PHAs, the public housing agencies, they're the ones that administer the voucher program. They hand out the vouchers, a beneficiary gets the voucher, and then takes it out and finds their own unit. So that's what we really really want, is we want those programs to be more helpful to beneficiaries.
1: We're speaking with Ray Oliver Davis, the inspector general at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And another one on the list away from the housing programs itself is managing human capital. My understanding of HUD is that many of the employees there tend to stay a very long time because they consider themselves housing people as opposed to, you know, some other mission in the government. And what are the issues with respect to managing human capital?
0: I think, you know, that is in some ways a great benefit to the department, right? It's really a great benefit to have people who have that sort of calling or that passion and build up that expertise in housing. What we're really talking about there, and frankly, human capital management is a government-wide challenge. If you look at my colleagues in Siggy, they all flag this, most of them in their own respective departments. But we really want them to just retain knowledge, knowledge around hiring. We did some work a while back. We looked at time to hire, how fast can HUD get people on board that they need with the right skill set, and we found they were pretty challenged in that area. They've improved, but we want them to draw on that knowledge and come up with standard operating procedures, office protocols, uh, program sheets, because when there is turnover, people lose that knowledge, and it becomes, again, just another challenge in the hiring process. It's like reinventing the wheel every time.
1: And that relates to a couple of issues you mentioned also, which I think are related, management and oversight of information technology. And right below that on the list is fraud risk management. And there's a element of relationship between those very two issues, isn't there?
0: Well, it's right. And honestly, the human capital management is something that overlays every other recommendation, every other challenge that the department has. That affects the way they address all of these things. In terms of information technology, I mean, if you look at, HUD's information technology, they are using systems that have billions of records on them that have personally identifiable information. The systems also track thousands of transactions. So HUD and their stakeholders rely upon that. So you're right, they have to have the right human capital management there. What we're really talking about in terms of information technology is is cyber security. You know, we really want the department to be improving its ability to monitor everything inbound and outbound on its network to look for bad actors, things like web applications. You know, right now the program offices are accountable for their own web applications, but we want them to bring the CIO's office in. They need to understand the inventory of web applications they have out there and be in the position to approve all of them and monitor them. If I could, Tom, if I could comment on the fraud risk, you know, that's something that, of course, at OIG we talk about quite a bit there is a tremendous amount of money that flows through HUD and it is all susceptible to fraud. We looked at HUD's fraud risk management in particular and we used GAO's framework as a best practice. And we like that because it calls into question whether or not HUD is doing continuous monitoring. You know, so much of this money is funneled out to the grantees. That's where we really want HUD to be doing its oversight, not just at the HUD operations level, but are they looking at the grantees and how they're spending this money? And also this GAO fraud risk framework, it calls for them to bring us in, frankly, for us to help them look at a fraud risk inventory, for us to help them assess their internal controls. And that's what we want. If you look at the pandemic, There was such a huge influx of money. In one particular instance, we had a pandemic program aimed at homelessness. Grantees were receiving over a 1,000% more funding than they typically get in an annual year. That is a remarkable amount of money to track for fraud. Now, something HUD does is they do these front-end risk assessments. Again, that is what it says it is. It's on the front end, and it's particularly useful, I think, when they have a program, a new program, or when they have a program that has an existing influx of funds. They've listened to us. You know, they've added fraud as an element there. The program offices are bringing in some people with some fraud background. So it remains to be seen what that will yield. But we're excited about that for sure.
1: Kind of makes you wish they brought in those people before the money went out and not two years later.
0: Well, hey, we're going to keep monitoring this. We appreciate the effort and we're going to see what comes from it.
1: And just a final question. This sounds like a weighty report that would have landed with a thud on the secretary's desk. Are you getting the sense that Marsha Fudge has read it and takes it seriously? And she called up and said, Ray Oliver Davis, let's get on this.
0: You know, I am certain that it's gotten her attention. These are things that I know from talking to her personally, whether it's cybersecurity, whether it's certainly led in housing, these are things that she's certainly on top of. The deputy secretary and I have talked about this already. We've talked about how we can move the ball on some of these. And with respect specifically to the secretary, you know, I did hear from her recently on our top management challenges, which all of these priority recs come from our top management challenges. And she responded and was quite complimentary. It, It seemed as if the recognize themselves in our TMCs, So I suspect they recognize themselves in the Top Rex report as well.
1: And again, this report is something you're going to update yearly.
0: That's our goal. This is the first one of its kind. So we're going to see how a year of having this report on file goes and if we can move the ball on some of these. But I think that would be a best practice for us if we could do that. Yes. You know, it's interesting, the dialogue around these, I suspect when we talk to the department, we're going to talk a lot about capacity, you know, whether or not they have the capacity to do these things, whether or not there are any legislative or regulation changes that are needed. These are the top priority because they're also some of the hardest to tackle, right? But uh, I'm looking forward to the year ahead and looking forward to working with the department to do just that.
1: Ray Oliver Davis is Inspector General at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. As always, thanks so much for joining me.
0: Thank you so much, Tom. I appreciate you highlighting this important report.
1: And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University, and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome.
3: Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
2: Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you and then, and and how did, what did that look like?
3: Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took... Um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that?
3: Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question one Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on on the Metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, And so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues.
2: And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you.
3: Well, I wish I wish, and it, was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense.
2: Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started?
3: Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to Take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table, and that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships and trust. Other times I needed to learn to tune it up, right to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave, and we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point I don't even remember what the point was now and he stopped in the hall and said, "Why didn't you say that in the meeting?" You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all.
2: Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is
3: And you're going to get in there quickly, (laughs) and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other
2: career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time.
0: This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. Ladies and gentlemen, we need you. The Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks is looking for you to help support veterans, help with youth scholarships, and be a force in your community. Being a member of the Elks is where you can do all this and much more. We are 31 lodges strong across the state of Iowa. Help pass on our principles of charity, justice, brotherly love, and fidelity. If interested, go to elks.org and use the lodge locator to find a lodge near you. Elks care. Elks share. Brought to you by the Iowa Elks Association.